You know, if you try to go to some cocktail party and people ask you, where were you born? Where are you from? You don't sound like you're American. Okay, well, now I guess I'm not a white guy. Welcome to Majority Minority, a podcast about people of color changing the face of Washington. I'm Frank Ordonez, and I cover the White House for the 30 news outlets that together make up McClatchy. And I'm Bill Douglas, and I cover Congress for McClatchy. Today we have Liam Fresco, an attorney who in today's Washington is regarded as, as a swamp creature. You know, he's part of the swamp that Donald Trump wants to drain. He's the guy that goes into the back rooms. You know, when things get bad, you call to make things right. Yeah, Leon's claim to fame was he was Chuck Schumer's right-hand man on immigration. We are here to announce that eight senators from opposite sides of the political aisle are coming together on a common-sense immigration reform proposal that we believe can pass the Senate. People talk about the swamp and how bad Washington is and backroom deals and stuff. You know, if it weren't for people like him, things wouldn't get done in Washington. And he likes it. He is who he is. He's a fixer, kind of like that Michael Clayton character that George Clooney played. Don't you know who I am? I'm a fixer. I'm a bag man. I do everything from shoplifting housewives to bent congressmen, and you're going to kill me? But he sees him kind of as a more of a nice guy, and Leon is a nice guy. Sort of I can consider myself the St. Jude of immigration, which is most people don't think, oh, I can afford this individual's rate to hire them to do an immigration matter. And what ends up happening is after they lose a bunch of times, they realize, oh, I actually now have to spend a bunch of money to try to get someone to correct my case. Or if it's a business to get my proposal for fixing the immigration system to the uh, right individuals. And what people realize is once they can't get it resolved through whatever way they failed, they come to me to try to help them with a mix of the Congress, the administration, the courts. And one or the other, there seems to always be a way to move forward to get someone a solution that they need. So is it kind of of like you're a fixer? Yes. I don't want to characterize myself in a pejorative way. Really, I'd like to say that I would like to enlighten folks about their options in a way that nobody else has seen and present them a world that they didn't even know could exist of how to solve their problems. So like a Michael Clayton, but a nice guy. Yes, exactly. Trying to trying to play that role. I'm not handsome, but I try to pres- try to give you the same outcome as Michael Clayton without blowing up your car. You're not bad looking, but, <laughs> but you, you, you sort of use the word pejorative. Mm-hmm. How do you think people view what you do? Well, that's so that's the the complication is that anybody would think, okay, what I'm paying for is if this guy is going to get me some treatment that would otherwise have not been available. And the truth is, there's nothing about what I do that someone else couldn't do, except that. Uh, I have a working knowledge of how decisions get made. You know, let's say you said to me, Leon, I want to create a system for registering pets coming across from Europe to the United States. I want to be able to have a system that registers that so A, we can know, you know, who's coming in so people aren't have diseases or whatever else, and B, so that people are registered, and C, so that there's no international abduction of these pets, whatever. Okay. That idea, there's nothing wrong with that idea. That idea could be implemented, but here's what you'd have to do. You have to talk to the right people at the Department of Homeland Security, the right people at the State Department, the congressional appropriators that deal with this issue. You have to get them excited. You have to show why it would be relevant for a job creation purpose in their district. You have to get the people mobilized in that district, uh, wherever this business is going to happen, to say, hey, you've got to be the main congressperson who's going to get involved in this because this is going to be a job-creating opportunity for you. You've got to get, let's say, the Humane Society, whoever. You've got to get 
every single person to bear, and only then can you break through the inertia of the fact that there's never been a dog tracking system that DHS has done before. So that requires a lot of back and forth, because the answer you're going to get from everybody is no, except you've then got to get one yes and then trigger from all those. This person said yes, so what do you think about this? And you keep triggering back and forth until you ultimately get a final outcome. So it's very taxing work, stressful work. The clients all want results. They are not paying you to get a no. But all of this kind of work can get done and is doable, but you need someone to set out a long-term strategy of all the points you have to check to get from A to B. Why, if it's such a needed product, is there such a negative connotation to it? Well, I think the problem comes from the fact that I think, and I share this view, that the government should be easier to navigate than what I've just described. And the problem is we're not wired for every contingency that exists in the world. Problems get created, and the only way to get these problems solved is by educating people that problems exist and explaining why you're approaching people with the right solution to that problem. But... Unfortunately, all of that has been called swamp peddling, influence peddling, etc. And so that's where it gets complicated. I, If what I did was I worked on the Trump campaign and then I'm just going to Trump and I'm asking Trump for a bunch of favors, I would view that as influence peddling and illegal and improper. And that's what people are against. I mean, is it tough every four years that you have candidates who say, we got to drain the swamp, we got to, mm. you know, we got to solve this problem. And in a way, you're kind of in that? Yeah. I mean, do you feel like you're in that? Well, I guess, yeah. I mean, the question I would ask is, what is the swamp? I define the swamp as something was not going to get done because people were philosophically opposed to doing it. Money was exchanged hands to a person, and now that thing that someone was philosophically opposed to happening has happened. That is swamp. That is a terrible thing. And to the extent that that happens in the government, you know, that's the swamp. Yeah, yeah. You got to figure that stuff out. But do you think the public differentiates? No, of course not. And no one should expect that is the point. I agree with that. And so if somebody wants to call me, you know, green creature of the swamp, they can. But that's at least me how I view this personally. The difference is, you know, there are people who are there to guide people through the process. And there are people who are there to basically trade on themselves. And that's what I don't think is proper. You're obviously Cuban-American. Sure. Your parents are Cuban. Yeah. When did your parents arrive? How did they arrive? And how's that kind My of... My parents arrived in the uh, early 60s. The program Dragnet, normally seen now, will be preempted this one time in order that WCKT may bring you the following special program. This is Fidel Castro. He's Cuba's strongman. He's her weakness. Fidel Castro has ruled six months, 26 days. Tonight... We My mom tells me these stories. The very first couple days that Castro started, the teachers started making them take oaths to Fidel Castro and say, there's no more God anymore. Fidel is God. And if you tried to say anything different, like they pulled my mom's hair, they hit her against the wall. And so all that kind of stuff, I just feel like... Um, they didn't want to stay for the exciting conclusion of that. My father went through uh, Chicago and my mother went through New York because when they brought everybody to this Freedom Tower in Miami, which still exists, where the Miami Heat plays, they gave you choices because there were too many people in Miami. So my father's side of the family chose Chicago. My mother's side of the family chose New York. And then they both at some point moved to Miami as, you know, maybe the cold or, or whatever got to them over the course of the year. So they met in the late 60s. 
1970s and got married. And my brother was born in 1972 and I was born in 1977. And then I went to public schools all throughout my time in Miami. I graduated from Miami Beach High School fully aware of the fact that the normal growing up in Miami was being a Cuban-American. It was not being Caucasian or any other, any other, right? The Cuban-American was the one having the more typical experience. So it's weird because I identify myself not as Caucasian, but as a majority. I like understand the idea of saying I'm in the majority, except that, you know, if you try to go to some cocktail party and people ask you, where were you born? Where are you from? You don't sound like you're American. Okay, well, now I guess I'm not a white guy. But then you went to college. Mm -hmm. You and Ivy. Yeah, that was the first time I realized I was not just a white guy, basically. How, how did you come to realize that? You just know it immediately. Like in Miami, a lot of the people, the way, for instance, you dressed was very like, you know, you'd watch some videos on MTV. You tried to emulate those videos. When I got to college, I looked ridiculous. Like, you know, everybody looked at me like, why are you wearing all these hockey jerseys and all these like, you know, uh, other kinds of things. Like that. It just makes no sense. Nobody dresses like that here. Bill wears I, a lot of hockey jerseys. You wear hockey jerseys, Bill? Hockey. I love hockey well, well, jerseys. Well, fine. You wear hockey, but if you were wearing a hockey jersey in 1995, you were trying to emulate some like Snoop Dogg video or something. You were not trying to. So you were uh, you were rocking a, a Florida Panthers. Yeah, yeah, I had Florida Panthers. I had like a, I had like a million. I had Hartford Whalers. I had like all the jerseys. You know, uh, and people be like, "What are you doing? You know, nothing, nothing you're doing." They're like, "You're not dressed for for the Ivy League. for the Ivy League." So you had to dress like the way all of us are dressed now. You know, and my mom was pissed because all that cost a lot of money. All those, <laughs> and she's like, "No, now we have to buy all this. You know, reasonable looking clothes that I'd wanted to buy you in the first place." when you bought all this nonsense. So what did your uh, parents do? So my mother worked for Norwegian Cruise Line. The company that she was at, she got fired when she was pregnant with me. That's how bad things used to be back in the day. And then after I was born, they hired her to go do Norwegian Cruise Line. You know, obviously you couldn't fire people for being pregnant anymore, thank God. Uh, and she started as what's called a key punch operator, which is the lowest thing you could do. And by the time she retired, she was the head of all IT for Norwegian Cruise Line. She worked her way up the whole time. And my father was a plant man at various different plants, but my mom always made more money than my dad. And so for me, that was also a very instructive thing in terms of my view of women in the workplace and the role of moms and everything else. I was always used to a mom that had to work and had to provide and that literally uh, stories all the time about her being treated terribly in the workplace in comparison to her uh, male colleagues. So I was very sensitive to all of that growing up, and I tried to take that very seriously. So it sort of sounds like a middle-class upbringing. Mm -hmm. You get to college, you've got all these wonderful hockey jerseys and all these wonderful basketball yes. jerseys. I mean, how else did you sort of stick out in that environment? Well, a lot of things I was learning at Penn were the first time I was hearing those things in class. And a lot of the kids had already learned all of that stuff in their school. So I thought that was a very interesting thing. It was like a lot of the stuff, especially the first year, was all like, wow, this is great. And they're like, oh, yeah, I learned that in like 10th grade or whatever. You know, a lot of them had gone to very, very good schools. And that was one thing I had noticed. But I don't say like I had to catch up or anything. I'm not saying, I'm not making any excuses. I'm just saying that's another thing that made me understand that my upbringing wasn't necessarily up to par, at least with my classmates, you know, you'd hear other things about like, you know, where do you go for the summer? Where do you go for, you know, where do I go for the summer? The same place I was <laughs> in the winter or whatever. I go Miami, it's where I'm from. Uh, now, I will say this. I always thought I was extremely fortunate in that because my mom worked for Norwegian Cruise Line. We went on free cruises all the time. So I was very well-traveled. And by well-traveled, you mean you go to the same eight islands over and over and over and over and over and over and over again in the Caribbean, which would now be great. I haven't been to a Caribbean 
an island probably in 20 years. But I used to go all the time, and I would say things like, Mom, do we have to go to Grand Cayman again? This is terrible. And now I don't even, you know, remember half of the stuff that we used to do. But it was just because we could go for free. So that was my understanding of basically, you know, why things were different. And then the other thing that was very interesting is I tried to join the Latino groups at Penn and at other places, and I never felt comfortable there either because I didn't want to be in a group that was just like, oh, I'm just in this group, and now there's just a bunch of people like me, and I just wanted to just walk around and just talk to whoever. And so I didn't want to really be in any group of any kind. I still, I don't like joining now when people tell me to join things. I don't like joining pretty much anything because I don't want to associate myself to the extent possible with some limited subset of people that in some way closes me off from the rest how, of the world. But how did you end up being an immigration lawyer, though? So the immigration lawyer thing is a complete accident. What happened was I graduated from the University of Pennsylvania in 1999, and that was like 1999, if you want to say what year was probably the best economic year in the history of the United States was 1999. I think unemployment was under 4%, and it was like a legitimate under 4%. It wasn't like this kind where no one's in the labor force. It was like they were dragging people out of nowhere trying to find jobs for people because there were just that many jobs out there. And so pretty much everybody who was graduating from the University of Pennsylvania who wanted a job doing investment banking could get a job doing it at that time. And so I said, sure, somebody's going to pay me 100000 flat uh, to, to go and do uh, investment banking. I'm going to do out it. Out of college? Out of college. That's what it was in 1999. So I said, I'm deferring my law school and I'm going to go get paid. And I, it was great because I went into law school without loans. But what I decided was that doing investment banking was something where I could not make an individualized mark. And what I mean by that is to say, in terms of the mathematical work, any mathematician could do that work. And there's nothing special about you versus somebody else who doesn't. I wanted to do something where I could say this was whatever I did, it would be my unique contribution. What kind, to of, the what kind of contribution did you want? Well, I, just wanted, I just wanted two things. One, ideally something that I could say if I was not born, this good thing wouldn't have happened. Try to figure out oh, what yeah. good thing. And even if I died tomorrow, I'd always wanted to be a lawyer. That was my dream always. I thought that the whole point of law school was it was like trucking school or like plumbing school. You go to learn how to be a trucker or a plumber or a lawyer. You know, Like they sit there and you go to some courtroom and you learn stuff. But no, there's no things like that. And so what happened was this, I got very frustrated very quickly. And if you would have met me right in my first year of law school, so right at the beginning of 2001, you would have said, this guy's worse than Ted Cruz. He's worse than, uh, you know, he is a right-wing, right-wing, right-wing guy. Because I'd just come out of investment banking and sort of that mentality was in my brain. How much money are you going to make? That's what your value is to the world. So I had a very bad attitude. Thank goodness Yale had a... Um, clinical program that they let you take it your because usually if you do clinical programs in in law school you have to wait a few years Yale lets you take it right after your first semester you can do clinical program and so there was a, a clinic that was starting called community legal services and literally what it was was we just went out in the community and just went somewhere and said what do you got for us and a lot of people had immigration cases and so that became the beginning of immigration then 
when I went to Holland the Night the first time, I did this thing called the Chesterfield Smith Fellowship. They agreed to pay me the normal law firm attorney salary for my first two years there, but I would do pro bono. And so a lot of the cases I did were immigration cases. But once I started doing all these cases, and especially because they were free, I started learning all of these things about the interstices of the law that just no one else saw. Because Is that how you got connected with Schumer? No. What happened with Schumer was... After my fellowship, I was doing the what I call anti-bono part of the fellowship, which was doing normal paying client work. There was a person I knew at the time who worked for Harry Reid named Serena Hoy, and she came down in late 2008 to do canvassing in Florida for the Obama campaign. And so I agreed to drive her around because by then I'd become a liberal, by the way, by doing all these pro bono cases. Yeah, we kind of skipped this, over this is that. Like we skipped over that. But the easiest explanation is after doing all these pro bono cases, I basically came to the realization, look how many people I'm meeting in life that are basically one break away from either having a horrible life or a decent life. And these are neither good nor bad people. They're just people who need this one break. And so the idea that life can twist so cruelly and that we would just have a whole governing strategy around the fact that literally people must be accountable 100% for the outcome of their life, regardless of taking into account any circumstances in that life made no sense to me anymore. Did you tell your parents you were sort of shifting from R to D? Basically, my dad has stayed a Republican, but my mom loves me so much. If I vote for Bernie Sanders or Ted Cruz, she'll like Bernie Sanders or Ted Cruz. It was an evolution. It was an evolution in the sense that I didn't fully, fully commit to Democrat until Obama versus McCain. And then I said, OK, I'm going to pick Obama. I'm going to go work for his campaign and try to help. And I mean, I didn't do a lot, but I did what I could do in Miami. So when Serena came down, she said, Leon, are you liking Holland the Night? And I said, honestly, if you can find any job for me on the Hill, dog catcher or whatever, uh, I'll go do it. It's, it's completely fine. And she said, OK. And that was in November of 2008. And in March of 2009, I got a call from her that said that Senator Ted Kennedy, who had been in charge of immigration in the Senate for 40 years, that he was, you know, in his final stages of cancer. So he was not going to be the chairman of the subcommittee anymore on immigration. And Senator Schumer agreed to, to do it. He needed new staff. And the reason I got the job with applying with no Hill experience is it turned out Senator Schumer didn't really want you to have Hill experience because any Hill experience you'd have had was not the Schumer way. So it was a match made in heaven. I was with him for five and a half years and that was, uh, you know, doing immigration. I see a lot of Schumer in you. Yeah, we have similar personalities. Now, you're both sort of men of volume, I yes, will say. Yes, very loud. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what's it like having a senator tell you to shut up? It was great. There was never any animosity working. I understood his personality. A lot of people get nervous and I just laughed the whole time because I understood. We had a great relationship. One of my favorite stories during immigration reform, he would tell me, Leon, you don't know how to explain anything to anybody. You literally, and you know, somebody else would be despondent if they heard that. And I turned to him like immediately and I said, Chuck, let me ask you a question. He said, what? I said, you know how you just explained this to everybody? How did that happen when you didn't know this 30 seconds ago? <laughs> how did this information miraculously get in, a, in, in your brain in a way where you could explain it if I was bad at explaining things? And so if you were coming from a good place, he would be totally fine with that. What do you think of Jeff Sessions, you know, floor speech about you? Mr. Fresco, now 35, the article says, led the brutal negotiation session, some of which lasted until 2 a.m., with staffers of the so-called Gang of Eight bipartisan team. Staffers 
of the gang of eight bipartisan teams. I mean, the staff has to write a lot of the bill. I mean, it's just the job of the members is to agree on what should be in the bill. But if a member is going to spend three to four weeks sitting at a desk writing a bill, when are they meeting with constituents? When are they doing anything? So, of course, that's why you have staff. Why are the American people spending all this money on staff if it's not to actually write the bill? So the pejorative that the attorney general made, then Senator Sessions, that, you know, this bill wasn't written by Senator Graham and McCain, but it was written by Schumer's staffer Leon Fresco. I would just say two things. Yes. But also, yes, to the extent that I also spoke to Rubio staffer, Flake staffer, all these people. And everybody knows, and it's their job to explain to their bosses. And so everybody knew what was in the bill. And the one thing that nobody ever accused me of or could accuse me of was that I put something in that bill that was in some way not wanted in there by all of the eight members of the Gang of Eight. That did not happen. I was very upfront. And that's why at my going away party, Senator Schumer got me the best gift of all time. I mean, he framed the first page of the Gang of Eight bill and each senator, all of the eight wrote something very nice. You know, John McCain wrote, shut the F up, Leon, (laughs) from John McCain, you know, all the best, like all these funny messages because of the fact that if you were negotiating from a place of honesty and saying, look, if you do this, you're going to get you know, a lot of criticism for it, but this is one way of solving it. If you don't want criticism, you would do this other thing, but it's not going to be great policy for X, Y, and Z reason. And you're up front and then you let people make the decisions. That's all you can do as a staffer. So, Leon, that bill, that legislation, you are working on giving those who are here undocumented a path to citizenship. Yep. They were going to be able to stay here, the 11 million. How did you go from that to representing one of the most controversial aspects of the Obama administration? Yep. The enforcement of immigration laws, including, as you know, we talked about mothers and children and detaining them and, you know, basically locking them up in detention centers. Yep. You went from being an immigration attorney to being... The ooh, I mean, the he, immigration, they're yeah, mad the at you. enforcement person, yeah, yeah. I did not believe in the principle of completely unfettered immigration. I believe there had to be some rule of law component. I've always believed that. I've always believed the original Chuck Schumer Democratic talking point of 2010, which somehow the party got away from, which was we are pro-legal immigration, anti-illegal immigration. I never believed in suddenly being pro-legal immigration, pro-illegal immigration. No. What about just like on a personal nature? I mean, you're a nice guy, you know, I mean, you were the ire of a lot of these immigration lawyers. I mean, and you represented the same type of clients that they did before. I mean, was that hard? I mean, personally. Well, I mean, it just had to be done. So I'll give you an example. When I came in uh, 2014 to the Department of Justice, there was a huge surge in both unaccompanied children and family immigrants coming to the border. And the first lawsuit that we had was, you cannot deport a minor without an attorney. And that is a perfectly reasonable goal of a lawsuit. You know, how can you take a kid through immigration court without an attorney? But was it hard personally, though? I mean, like saying that children shouldn't have lawyers. The the truth is, it wasn't even hard personally because the immigration judges themselves were already not deporting kids. Isn't that a technicality, though? I mean, mean, I'm just trying to play the devil's advocate of what the other immigration lawyers are saying. But I'm just saying it's not a crisis for me of conscience if I actually know in my heart I'm not doing any actual harm in the real world. And now 
what would make me resign from a position like that would be that I was being asked to defend something that I clearly thought was illegal. So, for instance, I would not have stayed for the travel ban. If somebody asked me to go to court for the travel ban, I would not have stayed for the travel ban. There seems to be this image of a lobbyist or a fixer, yeah. not, not the pejorative, okay. but a fixer, yeah. um, someone who's sort of selling their soul. Yeah. You're saying that you're comfortable in your own skin. Well, you have to say, am I playing a role in the world that's a necessary role for someone to play, and am I playing it in the best possible way? So here's the point in that. Someone's got to be a prosecutor. Was there, is nobody going to be a prosecutor? You know, is somebody's got to be uh, enforcing the immigration law. Somebody. So my only point is, you know, why wouldn't a defense attorney want me to be the prosecutor? Or why wouldn't an immigrant want me to be the person in charge of the Office of Immigration Litigation as opposed to somebody else who wants to use that position in a, in a negative, destructive manner, whereas I'm trying to use it in the manner that makes the least possible damage in that in that area? So, yes, whoever the head of the Office of Immigration Litigation is, the advocates will hate them. There's no doubt about it. But people have to be willing to step into those roles. So, like, some. Like the Dark Knight had to be the Dark Knight. Somebody had to take the blame for Harvey Dent getting killed, you know, or whatever. That's the point. So I'm not the Dark Knight. I'm not a superhero, but I'm just like, people have to play those roles. And even if that means they have to take a lot of junk from critics, you do it because you know that in your heart that the alternative would have been worse. Now, I've won a bet from my tag team partner over there. I bet you would give at least three or more three. movie so there references. There it is. I did the three. There it is. I got the three. So where did you get this fondness for movie references? I think it's just something people do. I, it's probably something I should have grown out of. But it was very helpful during immigration reform because you got to keep people happy. And that, I thought, was honestly my most important role. You mentioned a, a sort of a non-desire to belong to groups or organizations. Mm -hmm. Do you think that non-affiliation pact that you've imposed upon yourself helped you in dealing with Democrats and Republicans? I hope so. All I want from the other person that I'm dealing with in any discussion is that I can clearly see that there's some self-interest behind what they're doing that makes some sense. When I see something that doesn't make sense from the standpoint of where that person comes from, that's what frustrates me. I really try very hard to put myself in every place where everybody else would be and to try to figure out what they would be saying to me if they were hearing what I was saying and try to anticipate that and be sensitive to it. Now, if I have a huge weakness, is that I probably think I do know everything people are gonna say. So, gotta wait and listen and not just predict because it has happened to me on occasion. Now, it sounds like your journey has been part planned. Obviously, you planned to go to college, yes. but part accidental. You didn't yeah. plan on being an immigration lawyer. Correct. I, I assume you didn't plan on being a lobbyist yes. slash fixer, but you seem to be enjoying this. I, I mean, I just like, that I could provide for my family, and I like that my clients are generally happy with me. Maybe the only thing I'd like to do a little more of, and it's just going to be if people will pay me, is to go into court. I like being in court, uh, and I haven't been in court this year because I'm not allowed to sue DOJ until January of 2018. They have a ban of a year, so uh, I can't. How many do that. days away is that? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's a, it's a, I'm not I'm not counting in that way, but I just know it's in January of 2018. So I'll be back soon enough, and I'll be I'll be suing. Uh, but again, it won't be for everything. It'll be for things that genuinely excite me to go to the courtroom. You do realize what you just said, I'll be back and I will be suing yes, the government. Yes. Well, because they're doing things right now that, that would make sense to sue about. 
the travel ban's over, but there will, there will be many other things coming up that I can already see on the horizon with regard to things they want to do in the high-skilled immigration area that I know exceed the statutory authority that's available to the administration. And so if they do those things, someone's going to be hired to sue them, whether it's me or somebody else. Why, why does it matter that you, a Cuban-American, oh, yeah. oh, Cuban are kind of playing this inside game? Well, it is true. There are not a lot of Hispanics who are in the big law firms here in D.C. You go to Holland the Night in Miami, all you see are Cuban men partners. And so then you wouldn't think of anything of it. But I think it helps. I think it helps generally for people to see, hey, there's someone who's smart who doesn't look or think like me or whatever. Maybe there's more like him out there. How do you think Donald Trump will surprise us? Oh, I have no idea. I mean, there's always it surprises every day. But I would hope and I see this happening that he wants to do comprehensive immigration reform. That's sort of that's where his gut is on the issue and that he doesn't really believe the stuff he's been saying on immigration, except to the extent that he knows if he changed now. I mean, that 39 percent would go to four if he changed on immigration, in my view. I think immigration is big for a lot of those people. But having said that, what I mean by that is to say if he won a second term, I think it's literally one of the first things he'd do off the box is to do real, like the kind of immigration reform we were talking about in the uh, in the Senate in 2013, because I actually think that's where his heart is. But if he gets through the Russia thing, you could end up seeing some surprises there. What does success look like for Cuban-Americans under Trump? Maybe the one benefit we get out of Trump is that enough people are nervous about him that positive change happens in Cuba because people are nervous about the alternative. That would be the best thing I can I can think of for that. How close is Michael Clayton, do you think, to what you do? Uh, no, it's not very close. I can't do the things he does and the way he does them, but it's close in the sense that if somebody's desperate and they need help, they come to me. No one wants to pay my hourly rate without being desperate. So that's good. Leon, thanks so much. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Leon Fresco for being here. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to Majority Minority on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and hear more stories at McClatchyDC.com slash MM. The show is produced and edited by Jordan Marie Smith and Davin Coburn. And thanks to executive producer Ayanna Morali. And we'll be back soon with more Majority Minority.